It is so cold in here. It was a lot colder a couple hours ago in here. When you all came in, it got warmer. Incidentally, the men's restroom is very warm. I was tempted to stay in there. It's like a sauna. The heat is pumping in and it doesn't go anywhere. So if you are looking for a place to get warm this morning, actually not all of you should do that, even these days. (laughs) Yesterday, yesterday several of my boys came to me at different times. In fact, it's already happened this morning with the same and very serious question, Dad, how long are you going to preach tomorrow? <laughs> We've put off 90% of our Christmas traditions till after service today, so um, I was actually offered money by one of my children. <laughs> Two bucks is not going to do it, buddy. (laughs) Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this great morning that we have to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to remember it well. Help us to celebrate it well. Give you the glory and honor you deserve today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here at Veritas, our Four traditional Advent themes that we look to for four consecutive weeks are hope and love and joy and peace. So finally this morning, our theme is peace. Our text, as Greg read to us, is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you haven't already, please turn there. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In 17... 44, Charles Wesley, who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he was inspired to write another Christmas carol. He was inspired to write this Christmas carol as he looked at all of the orphans in England. And as he thought of the orphans in England, he wrote a song to remember the first coming of Jesus and to cry out for the second coming of Jesus. And that song is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. So let me read you the first verse. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, come thou long expected Jesus. How long had people been expecting him before he came? Well, they had been expecting Jesus since the Garden of Eden. We would have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, 
where in verse 15, God said something to the snake, who, by the way, was and is no ordinary snake. He said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. There's going to be hostility between you, Satan, and mankind. And then he says something very special about her future offspring, a particular future offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, a promise by God to send a man who would defeat Satan. Satan would bruise his heel, a reference to the crucifixion. But this man, this God-man, would bruise or crush his head. He'd render a death blow. So that was in the Garden of Eden, to the very first man and woman after they sinned. So by the time Jesus was born, people had been waiting a very long time. They were a longing people. They were a desperate people, which actually you hear correctly in many of the Christmas hymns that we sing. Like the one I just quoted, but let me give you a sampling of some others. Where you hear this theme of desperation and longing that is building, building, building until Jesus is born. We sung this song this morning in 1847, Adolf Adam. He set to music a poem written by a French wine merchant called Midnight Christians. And eight years later, that was translated by John Sullivan Dwight into a singing, singable version called O Holy Night. So let me read you verse 1 of the original poem of Midnight Christians and then verse 1 of what we know as O Holy Night. But here's the original Midnight, Christians, it is the solemn hour when God-man descended to us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of His Father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a Savior. People, kneel down, wait for your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Hear the solemnity, hear the the need for deliverance, hear the need for a deliverer. There's no sentiment in that. And then here's John Sullivan Dwight's singing edition, verse 1. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. And then listen to the next line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining, sharp, steep, physical, and mental decline. 
Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till, until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, so fall on your knees. O oh, hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night when Christ was born. A couple years later, in 1849, Edmund Sears wrote a poem called, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Listen to the fourth verse and hear the desperation and hear the longing that is fulfilled, that is relieved when Christ comes. Verse 4, and ye beneath life's crushing load. What a great line in a Christmas hymn. And all of you, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. This theme is all over the place in our Christmas hymns. This desperation, this longing for that promise made in Genesis 3 to be fulfilled, be fulfilled, save us, rescue us, even in joy to the world. It can't be in that song. That's all about joy, right? There's no desperation there. There's no longing there. But in joy to the world, we're dealing with the reality of sins and sorrows that what? Grow. With thorns that what? Infest the ground. And nations that need to have the glories of righteousness proved to them. Joy to the world. Here is the point. Here is why Christmas is a big deal. The birth of Christ marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to rescue desperate sinners. A promise made in Genesis 3 and made over and over again. So the birth of Christ marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to rescue desperate sinners. So here's Hebrews chapter 1. Look with me. In Hebrews chapter 1, we'll take these four verses one at a time. The author of Hebrews is unknown, but he opens up his book with these four verses, which in the original Greek was just one long sentence. So verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's exactly what we have in the Old Testament of our Bible. Men like Moses and David and the other prophets, they were mouthpieces of God and they were saying over and over and over, what were they saying? 
What was the message as God spoke to our fathers by these prophets? Well, here's a few things that made up that message in the Old Testament. Number one, you have been made to glorify God. You have been made to love God. You have been made to enjoy God. Why am I here? Why did God make you? He made you to love Him. He made you to worship Him, to adore Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him, to find your joy in Him. Number two, you don't honor God the way you should. You don't worship God the way you should. I don't glorify God the way I should. I don't enjoy God the way I should. I can't honor God the way I should. Because, though loved by God, I'm a sinner. And those mouthpieces of God were teaching God's people this. Number three, you need to be saved. That's a therefore. You were made to honor God, and you don't. You need to be saved by God. I need to be saved. I need to be saved from myself. I need to be saved from my own selfishness. I need to be saved from death. I need to be saved from sin. I need to be saved from Satan. I need to be saved from God's judgment. You need to be saved. You need to be rescued. You need to be purified. And number four, this message of the prophets was clear. God is going to save you. He's going to send a savior. He's going to send a rescuer. So Hebrews 1 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to your fathers by the prophets. And the message was you have been made to love and honor God. You don't love and honor God. You need to be saved from your sin. And I am going to make a way for you to be saved. And that's the promise that he first made in Genesis 3.15 and then repeated over and over and over as he spoke to our fathers through those prophets. And now here's a contrast, verse 2. The author is saying, okay, that was then. So God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, which we are still in, these last days then, these last days now, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Through Jesus. You got your Bible right there. We have the prophets of the Old Testament, and now we have Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus, who would raise up and teach his disciples, who would become the apostles and would write the New Testament as they would speak to us the words of Jesus. And then Ephesians 2 tells us that we as the church are built on that foundation of the prophets and the apostles. The Old Testament, the New Testament. The church is built on the Word of God. And now verses 2 through 4. The rest of these verses are, look closely, they are a description of the Son. Of Jesus. The main reason I picked this text. It is his birth. That we are celebrating. 
And we are prompted to celebrate when we read this description of Jesus. This right here, these verses, according to the author of Hebrews, is why we have so much to celebrate at Christmas. It's why you're here today. So who is Jesus according to this author of Hebrews? Let me pull out some of the things he says. Verse 2, he is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. He is a king and all creation belongs to him. That's Jesus. Also in verse 2, he created the world. You hear this in John 1, 1. You see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The Son of God was the agent of creation. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. What is this saying about Jesus? It is saying that He is God. Also in verse 3. He made purification for sins. That's the rescue. That is the rescue. That was why he came. To rescue us by purifying us. Verse 4. And now we're told. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is superior even to angels. So here is Jesus. He is the heir of all things. Everything in the universe belongs to him. He created the world. He is the radiance of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He came to make purification for our sins. Today he sits at the right hand of God and he is superior to everyone. He is even superior to the angels. That is who Jesus is. So again, Christmas. The birth of Christ marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to rescue desperate sinners. Now, we zoom in farther. Let's be reminded, how does he do that? How does Jesus come to desperate sinners and save them? What is the answer? What did, what did the author of Hebrews just say? How did he put it? By what? Making purification for sins. What is that? So let me briefly lay out this good news for us. First, God is the loving ruler of this world. Always has been. God is the loving ruler of this world. He made the world and everything in it. He made you, he made me, 
And he actually made us to be rulers in this world under him. And he made us to rule well, to love him, to love one another, to honor him, to glorify him, to be like him. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is the loving ruler of this world. Number two, we all, friends, reject God as our ruler. In that sense, there's no good guys and bad guys. There's bad guys. And a good guy, and his name is Jesus. But we all reject God as our ruler. We all want to, don't you see this? We all want to run our lives our own way. And we often, in that, make a mess of ourselves and make a mess of the world. And the Bible calls that, I'm going to do it my way, not God's way, calls that rebellion. It calls that sin. Romans 3, 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Does that mean you're as bad as you could possibly be? No, you're not as bad as you could possibly be. Does that mean that you're not good compared to others? No, you're always good compared to someone. But how good do we have to be? What does God say? Like me, he says. You need to be perfect like me. You need to honor me, follow me. You need to never hurt anyone. You need to never be unkind. You need to never be selfish. Be holy, we're told, as the Lord your God is holy. And here's the reality. None of us do that. None of us. I don't know what your streak is. Mine is not good. (laughs) Number three, God is not going to let us rebel forever. Because he's good. Because he's just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He will not let us rebel forever. God's punishment for our rebellion is death and judgment. Hebrews 9, 7. Every man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. And this judgment of God, this sentence of God is entirely just. If you think about it, he gives us exactly what we ask for. In rebelling against God, aren't we essentially saying to him, go away? I don't want you. I don't want you telling me what to do. Leave me alone. Which is precisely what God does in his judgment. 
His judgment is to withdraw from sinners and rebels, to cut them off from himself permanently. God's judgment against rebels is an everlasting, godless death. And now here's the good news. Number four, God is not just just. He is also merciful. Isn't that what you want? I want justice for everyone else and mercy for me. Justice, justice, mercy, mercy. God sent his son into the world, Jesus, who lived perfectly in our place. And Jesus died taking the punishment our sin deserves. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Number five, God then raised Jesus back to life, which is what we celebrate every Sunday, by the way. His resurrection. Jesus conquered death and now gives us new life and will return one day to judge the world. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the question for all of us in light of that good news is how will we live? What will we do with the lives that God has given us? Will we reject God and live our own way and eventually face his condemnation? Or will we submit to Jesus Rely on his death and resurrection for ultimate peace with God. That's the good news. Again, the birth of Christ or Christmas marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to rescue desperate sinners. Isn't the problem for us so much of the time that we don't feel desperate? Or if we do feel desperate, we feel desperate for the wrong things. Things that will not ultimately satisfy us. Maybe you've been desperate for those things and then you got those things the money, the job, the relationship, and you were still desperate. It wasn't satisfying. It didn't bring the contentment that your soul needed. Most of us are not as desperate as most of the world is. Or I should say we don't feel as desperate as most of the world does today. We are, by and large, doing very well. Congratulations. You're doing very well for yourself. You're among the most wealthy in the world. Many of us would say that we've suffered, but when we, 
when we hear about or read about suffering in much of the world, many of you, I know some of you can, but many of you, you can't relate. You haven't felt that kind of desperation. The truth is that you and I are very desperate right now. And doing well physically and material can be an enormous distraction. It's why it's so difficult, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Be distracted. And we need to be reminded how desperate our souls are. How spiritually bankrupt we are. How much we need Jesus to save us. That need to feel desperate is one of the reasons that it seems Dietrich Bonhoeffer was able to so appreciate his time in prison. As I understand it, he celebrated two Christmases in prison where he was for about two years before he was executed by Hitler, only weeks before the war ended. Shortly before his first Christmas in prison, he wrote his mom and dad a letter. I think he was about 37 years old. And here's an excerpt from that letter that he wrote to his mom and dad about Christmas and prison. Viewed, I love the opening line. Viewed from a Christian perspective, Christmas in a prison cell can, of course, hardly be considered particularly problematic. Most likely, many of those here in this building will celebrate a more meaningful and authentic Christmas than in places where it is celebrated in name only. That misery, sorrow, poverty, loneliness, helplessness, and guilt means something quite different in the eyes of God than according to human judgment. That God turns toward the very places from which humans turn away. That Christ was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. A prisoner grasps this better than others. And for him, this is truly good news. You hear that? The desperation. So the good news is really good. And to the extent he believes it. He knows that he has been placed within the Christian community that goes beyond the scope of all spatial and temporal limits and the prison walls lose their significance. So how do we this Christmas, if not already, come to be at peace with God? How do we enter into objective and subjective peace? Objective peace, real, actual, relational peace with God. Subjective, felt, experiential peace with God. Well, we must believe the gospel. You see why we preach the gospel over and over again. We must believe the gospel again and again. 
And if we believe the gospel, which just means good news, if we believe this good news, we will put our faith in Christ and live for him. That is exactly what St. Boniface did. St. Boniface is also at the root of one of our greatest Christmas traditions. And so, in conclusion this morning, in conclusion, let me share a story about him with you. It's a Christmas story. You can actually find it in one of the books that we sell here, a book called uh, Trial and Triumph. There's also, if you'd like to read more about this, a, a great article that is written by Mary Louise Harvey, and that is called How St. Boniface Kept Christmas Eve. But let me close with this story this morning, this Christmas story. His name was Winfred. He was from Wessex, England. He was named by the Pope St. Boniface, which means good doer. He had, as a pastor, refused great honors. He had uh, many opportunities to have prestigious posts and promotions, and he refused all of them because Boniface's passion was to take the gospel to unreached people. He wanted to be a missionary. Specifically, he wanted to be a missionary deep into Europe. He wanted to go to Germany and minister to the tribes there. And so he became known as the missionary to the Germans. Or he's known as the apostle of the Germans. So by the winter of 724, so that's the year. By the winter of 724, he had been traveling He had been a missionary for about five years with several companions. They were moving up and down the mountains in Germany, in Hesse, and Thuringia, and Saxony. And he is probably best known and most remembered for what happened on Christmas Eve in 724. He and his friends were out trudging through deep snow over mountains, across streams. And by about noon on that day, they were tired, they were exhausted, and they were missing home. They were thinking about England, thinking about home, thinking about family, thinking about the warmth, thinking about the celebrations of Christmas would be taking place. So they were weary. And so St. Boniface stood up and challenged and encouraged his friends and said, we must press on to Mount Gutenberg. And we must reach Mount Gutenberg before midnight. Why? Why? Why is that so important? So he told them. On Mount Gutenberg, there is a famous hill. 
And on that hill is the most gigantic oak tree that you've ever seen. And all of the local tribes believe that this oak tree is sacred to Thor, their god. The god of war, the god of thunder, the god of lightning. And tonight, it was for them Christmas Eve, but for them as pagans, it was the Eve of Yule, a Germanic pagan festival. And so he knew that what their tradition was, that on that night, at midnight, all the tribes would be gathered around the tree and they would make sacrifices to their false gods. So Boniface wanted to get there and interrupt their festival and declare to them the gospel and stop them and call them to no longer trust in the hammer of Thor, which they did, but to trust in the cross of Christ, to bring them their very first Christmas present. So he riled them up. We've got to press on. So they did. They rested for about an hour and then headed out, eventually hiking through the snow under moonlight. And finally, they reached that hill. They reached that great oak tree. And under his instruction, they hid and they waited. And soon after they arrived, there was a commotion. And they looked as droves of people started ascending the hill. First, a king. who was followed by 20 chieftains that were representative of all of the neighboring tribes. And then the druid priests behind them. Two by two by two. And then finally, behind all of those officials, many, many men, women, and children. So they made their way up the hill. And they all packed in and and gathered around this tree. And once they were assembled, there was an arch druid, a head priest. And he stepped forth and he began the service with, Prayers to Thor with loud cries and incantations, pleading with him. And then the Druid priest turned his face to the crowd and said, on behalf of their false god, that their false god would only be satisfied with a child sacrifice so the soldiers grew heavy you saw all of the moms pulling their little ones in close and then out of the forest comes a booming voice it was Boniface Hail Druids and all the people of this forest, hail. A messenger of God has come to speak to you. The Druid priest says, who are you? 
He said, I am a messenger from the king of heaven sent from across the sea to give you a message. He said, a message from Woden? No. Not a message from Woden. Not a message from Thor, for they are false gods. Imagine saying this. I bring a message from the Almighty, the only true God. And he proceeded that night to share the gospel and encourage them to turn to Christ. And as he's doing this, this Ark Druid is arguing with him and dismissing what he is saying and pleading with the people to move forward with their child sacrifice lest the gods become angry and take vengeance on them. So the people are fearful, trying to sort this out, trying to figure out who do we listen to, where do we turn. At that point, Boniface sprang forward with an axe and took it to the tree. And he starts wailing on the tree. And while he is wailing away on the tree, he was saying things like, you say this tree is sacred to Thor. Where is he? And he keeps chopping. And the priests are standing back. Some of them are even praying, Thor, Thor, take vengeance. Take vengeance. As he's taking the axe to the tree, maybe you need to speak louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Cry out to your God. And then his companions came and joined in, wielding their own axes. They continued to take turns until that great, gigantic oak tree fell to the ground. And the people believed. And the people believed. So St. Boniface continued to speak to them, told them from now on this Yule of Eve will be recognized as Christmas Eve. They said, what's Christmas? Explained to them what Christmas was. Said, from now on, the Yule log, the mistletoe, the evergreens, and the holly would no longer be signs of helplessness and fear, but heralds of good news bidding the world a Merry Christmas. And then here's a quote from the story. And here, then, He added, as his eyes fell on a young fir tree growing straight and tall beside the fallen oak. Why do we drag Christmas trees into our home every year? It is strange, isn't it? You think about it. He said, here is a tree which is forever green. It shall be a sign to you of your new religion. Do you see how it points to the sky? Do you see the cross on every twig? Let us call it the tree of the Christ child. And legend says people have been bringing Christmas trees into their homes ever since. 
by the 14th century, I'm sorry, by the 16th century, during the time of Martin Luther, many were bringing trees into their home as they celebrated Christmas. A reminder of the Christ child. The one tree, if you're to go up into the cold forest, that survives the entire bleak winter. A tree where you can see the cross on every branch. A tree, some have pointed out, with three points, representing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A tree that very clearly points us heavenward. Friends, we should drag these trees into our homes to remind us of Jesus Christ. Christmas, the birth of Christ, is worth celebrating. It is on Christmas that we remember together the peace we may have with God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for all that you've done and continue to do. God, thank you for making a way for us to be saved. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be our king, our Lord, our savior, our treasure. I pray that many would turn to him. Help us today as we continue in our Remembering and celebration to give you the honor and glory that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.